Hello and welcome to another Bunker Daily. I'm Andrew Harrison. I don't know about you, but I'm getting some of the best sleep of my life right now. I live right under the flight path to Stansted, and skies which used to be noisy by 7am are now clear and quiet along into the day. The reason, of course, is that the air travel industry is in suspended animation. In fact, it's experiencing the worst crisis in its history, bigger than 9-11 and the 2008 financial crisis combined. Global air traffic is down almost two-thirds. Passengers in US airports alone were down from 2.3 million on the 1st of March to 95,000 on the 16th of April and airlines are applying for government bailouts. It seems reasonable to ask if the industry can survive coronavirus in anything like recognisable form. And also, we're all human. We want to know whether we'll ever be able to travel and go on holiday the way we used to again. Here to help me with all of this is the award-winning travel and aviation journalist John Walton. He writes for everyone from Lonely Planets to Aircraft Interiors International. He's all over social media at walton.travel. I'm as international and wanderlust prone as anyone I know, he says. I grew up on three continents and joked that I was half-raised by cabin crew. Hello, John. Doors to cross-check, how are you? Uh, doors to manual, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm all right. You must be going crazy stuck indoors like this as a as a, a, a lifelong flying lover. Well, you see, it's not just flying. It's also, you know, jumping around Europe by train. You know, I live in central France, and so for, for quite a bit of my travel around this region, I, I hop on the high-speed rail these days. But it is the longest time I've ever been grounded, as it were, whether that's uh, not flying or not being on a TGV zipping around somewhere. It's It's... It's not natural, you know? Yeah, and you, there's only so much sourdough you can make and so many roses you can prune. Well, precisely. I'm very fortunate in that I have a nice little garden that I can get out in and, and occupy myself, and um, there are corners of it that have never been so tidy. Oh, there you go. So did, did I just overstate the scale of this emergency then? Because the news stories are uniformly uh, shocking in terms of this could be a, an industry extinction event. But also there's the, the kind of alongside that, the fact that we are in a climate emergency and, um, you know, that that does colour the entire story. Have I overstated it? I don't think anyone knows if you've overstated it yet. Um, I don't mm. think that we have a handle on just how much of an effect this will have other than lots right? Aviation has never been in anything like this before. Um, you know, we we look back to 9-11, we look back to the you know, 2008-2009 global financial crisis. Yes, those were large shock events. Aviation calls these black swan events. Um, but they were time limited, right? Sort of inherently time limited. There was an obvious how we fix this to, to both of those things. This is very much not, right? Um, you know, you, you could Liken this to the Icelandic volcanic eruptions. Um, it's it's not even that, right? It's global. Mm. It's not just European. And yeah, we, we really don't know what the effects are going to be. Um, and in an industry that needs a lot of certainty, because it has a lot of large capital expenditures, that in and of itself is a problem. One tends not to kind of, uh, you know, war game an event like this, because it's a once in a century thing. But has it revealed maybe kind of uh, fundamental problems with the business, fundamental you know, lack, lack of resilience that, were, that had perhaps been covered up previously? Yeah, well, look, everyone in the industry has been wargaming it since it began. Um, and I think that given that the industry is, um, if I say very exposed to China, that sounds a little weird, but China is a big part, a growing part, is now you know, possibly the largest part of this industry. Um, simply because of the number of people who want to fly, the number of aircraft that are being purchased. So aviation has been, you know, watching this for, you know, since since 2019. I think, though, that we're, we're really in a situation where 
the the impacts are going to be primarily on those uh, those airlines with pre-existing health conditions, right? The ones that were fundamentally unstable in some way, um, and 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 yeah, I think that's that's really what what well, what we're already seeing in terms of impact. Um, there are others um, who we're seeing, you know, going into some sort of voluntary administration at this point who are you know at an underlying level relatively healthy, but just don't have the cash reserves. Um, mm. which is in and of itself a, a, an interesting question, right? In terms of the war chest, as it were. Yeah, in, in, in terms of the fact that, you know, these are these are massive multi-billion dollar corporations who don't seem to have had the sort of, you know, sensible uh, cash float, as it were, that, that your average household would. Now, I'm not saying that you can liken running an airline to running a household, but... You know, I feel that at some point somebody should possibly have have required airlines to be able to you know run in the event of a a, a disruption, um, you know, and not go bust within a month. Yeah, um, and and I think that's certainly going to be something that people start looking at. Um, you know, we already require a certain um, level of, um, of of backing for things like banks, for example. Right to be to play in the um, in the financial sector, you have to have a certain amount of, of ring fenced money, um, uh, and I think it would probably be sensible for regulators to start looking at aviation in a similar light. Are the airlines aware that their applications for bailout are kind of a bad look at the moment? And it's you know particularly egregious when we see Richard Branson kind of putting Necker Island down as uh, as kind of collateral. Uh, you know when when people are, are concerned about their own jobs. And concerned about uh, you know what looks like it's going to be a once in a century recession. Bailing out airlines doesn't necessarily immediately seem like an an, uh, an absolute necessity. The way, for instance, preserving the financial system was in two thousand and eight. Well, exactly. Um, and look, I am a, a very big fan of airlines and aviation, but I, I I've been banging my head against the desk in terms of you know, what airlines have been doing, in, both in terms of you know not refunding people where that is either. Um, sensible or let alone legally required right um i i fundamentally i mean this is a this is a, a wider comment on the on the situation with, with with virgin obviously both virgin atlantic and virgin australia i fundamentally feel that that it's been quite some time since having a playboy billionaire as your mascot and frontman made a lot of sense for any business mm-hmm. um and and i think that may well be something that that if if both of the versions survive, which looks like a reasonable expectation, I've got to say. Um, if both of them survive, they may well be in a situation where they say, look, it's, it's, it's time for, for Sir Richard to go and, um, and retire with, with what's left of his money. Mm. Are there other airlines or possibly even destinations that are unlikely to survive this emergency? Because you know, after 9-11, certain airlines just did not make it. Right, absolutely. Um, and again, I think it's so airlines with, with the pre-existing health conditions, right? South African Airways in South Africa has been, you know, circling the drain, as it were, for, for ages. Um, you know, Alitalia is perennially one of those airlines that people assume is going bust, and, and it frequently does go bust, but it keeps flying because there are fundamental reasons for the Italian state to want to retain control of an airline. Um, I think those reasons are going to be um, are going to be used by a number of countries to bail out their own um, airline. I think we're going to see a bit of a renegotiation of the relationship between uh, between countries, between governments, and between airlines based there. Um, yeah. I, as, as an example, the the US um, 
has something called the, the, the basically says civil air reserve, um, which allows them to activate um, large aircraft, particularly large cargo aircraft, but also large passenger aircraft in the event of a uh, of a civil or military emergency. Um, I suspect we might well see something like that happening uh, happening elsewhere. It would seem to make sense. Um, you know, I think certainly in the UK context, um, it is it has never been a better time to review the. Um, the, the situation with what happens when an airline goes bust in the UK versus what happens when an airline goes bust, say, in the United States, right? If you declare Chapter 11 bankruptcy as an airline in the States, you keep flying, right? You keep you know, bringing your passengers back, um, you know, repatriating people. Whereas in the UK, the CAA has to launch this you know, massive series of uh, you know, largest evacuation in peacetime, you know, Dunkirk, but by air, all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and, and fundamentally, this is, you know, a, a large part of, um, you know, the uh, legacy of under-attention to aviation by by governments over the decades. But also, I think it's it's probably just time to have a have a think about, you know, what it means to, to have an airline in your country. Yeah. Flying is supposed to be a pleasure. Is there a, is there a kind of a fear in the industry that the demand for air travel might decline at an emotional level, that people might not want to travel quite so much? I mean, it's already kind of a guilty pleasure as we become increasingly aware of, of uh, its effect on the climate. Is there, a, is there a fear out there that perhaps you know, the, the, the level of guilt at this guilty pleasure might become too great and actually possibly the level of fear as well? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question to unpack, isn't it? I mean, is flying a pleasure? I mean, definitely in some cases it is. I'm fortunate enough to have a fairly hefty uh, bank of frequent flyer miles, though, you know, who knows what's going to happen to those if the airline's holding them go past. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I get to fly up in the pointy end where, you know, the, where the beds go flat and there's, you know, um, champagne at the push of a button, as it were. You get um, to turn that, left. Uh, yeah, I do get to turn left. That is, that is definitely a good thing. Um, but, you know, at the same time when I'm flying around Europe, I'm in the, the same seats as everyone else, right? Mm. Um, and... Is is that a pleasure, or is it you know a, a bus with wings? That's that's a really interesting question, um, and and I think that a, a almost a renegotiation or a uh, a reset of expectations between airlines and passengers is inherently going to happen with this. Um, it's 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 something that sort of keeps happening, you know, all the time anyway. Um, as you know, you, you end up with the, what we call the legacy carriers, right? The, the what used to be flag carriers, your British Airways, your Air France. Um, they like very much to trade on the currency of having you know a, a history in the sort of caviar, champagne, and Chateaubriand era. Mm. Um, whereas actually, it's it's you know now it's would you like to buy a packet of pepper pigs, sir? Um, <laughs> you know, which which is fine if you're on EasyJet, which is very much not claiming mm. to be anything but cheap and cheerful, right? It's even fine on Ryanair, which isn't claiming to be anything but cheap and nasty, right? Mm. I mean, in terms of the expectations that Ryanair sets, they've been genius at doing that. Um, but I think that we're going to see passengers certainly rethinking a lot of their travel. Um, I think that, I mean, are we going to feel more ashamed of traveling now than we did four months ago? I mean, as with so much of what's happened to aviation in the context of coronavirus, it's it's accelerating a lot of trends that were already happening. Yeah, and it seems a safe bet that people are going to be more conscious about travelling. It seems a safe bet that people will, you know, decide to to 
either staycation or you know go somewhere relatively close by that you might be able to drive to or take another form of transportation. Um, whether or not that fear is grounded in you know medical or epidemiological reality, right? Is it safer to sit on a train than it is to sit on a plane? I do not know. I am not a doctor. Um, you know, do trains have HEPA filters like planes do on their air? No. Um, you know, nobody has done this this research in the age of coronavirus. Um, mm. So, yeah, it may turn out as somebody does some research over the next year that planes are the safest place to be. But you've then got to get to the airport. You've got to stand around in queues. Um, and that's the, you know, the airport experience is something that aviation more widely did fairly badly on um, in terms of you know early you know, physical distancing. So the long way of saying no one really knows that, but it's probable that, that our relationship with flying will change. Well, we've just seen Michael O'Leary from Ryanair, speaking of buses with wings, moaning that uh, he's, he doesn't think the empty seat uh, between you know the, the 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 central seat separation thing, social distancing in the air is going to work, and he'd rather fly his planes with, without that uh, at all. Um, does he have a point? I mean, they've driven their they've driven their costs down so far that, um, and you re- and you can really tell it as a flying experience that you wonder whether something like Ryanair can survive the addition of additional um, restrictions like that. Or do they just have to start charging twenty five quid for a flight to Nice as opposed to fifteen quid? Well, I mean, this is this is a question, right? I mean, it's it's interesting that everyone always perceives Ryanair to be the most uncomfortable thing flying. It's actually not, right? I mean, in in the pure physical point of things, it uses seats other people use, it uses aircraft that other people use, and the seats are no closer together than on many other airlines. Um, you know, so it's it's fascinating they've managed very cannily to portray themselves as a miserable experience so you expect it to be cheap so it's kind of the first thing that you check to see whether it's you know that much cheaper than everyone else i mean that's that's the basis of their marketing strategy right Mm. that's why the whole thing of oh staff aren't allowed to plug in their personal mobile phones that's that's literally invisible in terms of, of of cost you know it's why they make it an unpleasant experience because if it's if it's unpleasant, you assume that it's the cheapest, and I mean that's just fundamentally not the case anymore. Um, now, going back to this question of middle seat distancing, that's something I've been looking into a lot recently. Um, your average airline seat is 16, 17, 18 inches, you know, close to seventeen or eighteen, but there are some that are they're under that. So you're looking at basically being between eight and nine inches further away from the person next to you. Does that make a difference? I do not know. Again, I am not a yeah. doctor. Um, you know, does, you know, fundamentally you are 28 to 30 inches sort of front and back from the person in, in, the, in the next rows, right? Given that our breath tends to go forwards and not sideways, uh-huh. I, I, fundamentally nobody has done the, the science to, um, to model the spread of a disease like this. There has been some work done with original SARS, you know, the yes. classic flavour. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's been some work done with um, with various forms of influenza. Um, it seems very much that this, you know, SARS-CoV-2, um, you know, the, the COVID-19 coronavirus, it seems very likely that has some different spread, right? Um, there was that example of the choir in Washington State who... Uh, Foolishly, it turned out, held a rehearsal um, relatively early into this. Um, everyone sat two metres apart. Nobody hugged or kissed or anything else. But 
you know, a lot of people got infected there. Um, It would seem to me reasonable to take some precautions. I do not know at this point whether it makes more sense to do physical distancing like that or whether it makes sense to give everybody a box of bleach wipes as they get on the plane um, or, or, or what, right? I mean, fundamentally, there's only so much you can do if you're going to be continuing to fly. Is this the most efficient thing to do in terms of, of you know, cost versus benefit? I don't know. Could, you know, let's assume that we're, we're cutting what is essentially one third of all seats. That means that pretty much every other ticket has to cost half as much as it did. Um, so, so, you know, you're right. Your, um, your 15 quid ticket may go up to 20 something quid. Um, you know, there's, you can fill around the margins in terms of how much needs to be added on because you're not, you know, if you're one, you've got um, seats blocked off, you're not paying the um, the same number of, uh, of aviation taxes, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, I, I, I have real questions about whether that is the thing that's going to make right. it safe to fly versus yeah. handing out masks versus, you know, giving everyone a little squeezy bottle of hand gel um, versus blood tests in the airport like you're seeing happening in Dubai. Um, yeah, I, I, I just fundamentally don't know. And, I, and I've got to say that my, um, my supposition is that there are other things that could potentially have a greater impact. Most of us believe that uh, business travel is where aviation makes its money, and that may still be the case. I don't know. Uh, COVID has changed everybody's working patterns. We're all working from home. I'm working from home. You're working from home. The, the very idea of going into the office to work has got a question mark over it now. Surely this is going to affect business travel. We're not going to see business travel return for aviation the way, you know, that the sort of American phenomenon of the, quote, road warrior, this weird phrase for a person who flies around with a laptop and a, and a briefcase all the time. If that doesn't come back, in the same numbers that it, it did before the crisis, is that going to change the shape of the industry? Another interesting question here. So, is business does aviation run on business travel? A lot of it does. Yes, um, there are parts that do not. So, for example, Jet Two, the British holiday airline, which is largely to take people from where it is not sunny to where it is sunny, or in the winter to take them to where it is snowy and pointy, but not snowy and pointy. Um, <laughs> You know, there's not a lot of business travellers going between Birmingham and Gran Canaria, for example. Um, That said, you are quite right to talk about the US example of road warriors. And there's a lot of, and and, and that happens in in Europe as well, right? Um, I think that nobody has yet done video conferencing well, right? Um, Zoom seems to be the best that we can get. And we've all seen all the problems with that. Um, you know, whether that's a problem of, um, you know, uh, there are parts of the world where the internet is, 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 is not a familiar thing. Um, and I sort of joke when I, you know, use countries like Germany and Australia there, because I don't know if you've traveled to Germany or Australia recently, but the internet is dramatically slower than it is in a significant part of the rest of, of Europe and other competing countries, largely because of varying legacies of infrastructure under, uh, under investment, right? Um, mm. If you are trying to talk to people in Sydney, um, like fundamentally, it is going to be harder to to use things like video conferencing and to have a reasonable experience. If you're talking to somebody in, I don't know, Tallinn or Helsinki uh, or Seoul, for that matter, or or even Auckland or Wellington in New Zealand, um, that's going to be an easier ask. I think that business travel will come back. Um, I think that the sales profession there's still a lot to be said for looking people in the white of the eyes, as it were. 
we obviously don't have any sort of VR, Star Trek, Star Wars kind of help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope level of, <laughs> of technology at home. Um, so, you know, I think that's going to be a, a game changer when that happens. But I think there's also what they call the, the, the mice business, right? The um, basic meetings and conferences. Um, mm. I think that that is going to be an early sign that business is getting better, right? I mean, and business globally, but also business for airlines. Um, you know, fundamentally, nobody is going to want to go to a conference or a trade show right now because nobody knows what the business is, right? And what yeah. people are going to want and what people are going to need. Um, and that's true for, for pretty much every industry. Um, there are some industries that are right now, you know, head down focused on producing things like PPE for, for, for medicine and so on, um, for, you know, to, in, in terms of distribution. Um, there are also industries who are in pause right now, you know, aviation included. Um, and I think that, that once the mice business starts coming back, right, once you have people traveling to trade shows, to conferences, um, to events, um, once we can all go to events again, yeah. uh, once, you know, after lockdowns have properly finished and not just in some sort of, you know, well, we're, we're letting the kids back to school, but, you know, and, and most people back to work, but, but you know, we're, we're trickling back. Mm-hmm. Um, then we'll see what's coming back. But, but it's going to be years. I mean, aviation is talking pretty much everyone is sort of, sort of 2022, 20, 2023 to getting back to 2019 levels. Wow, um, it's it's interesting you mention uh, the, the the conferences and, and the, the the and the business travel stuff as a as a as a barometer because as a as a kind of you know I'm not a corner office C suite type guy but I've always kind of suspected that there's something about self image that drives that stuff. If you see yourself as a kind of big business player, then the long uh, business class flights kind of what reinforces your sense of identity you know the idea that you're a player that you are a big figure in your business and now that business has been sort of stripped back to this utilitarian microsoft teams and zoom and uh you know you see the guy that you expect you expect to see in a very expensive suit is now in a kind of ratty hoodie uh, in his laundry room the idea that business travel is a reward and not just a means to an end seems to be something that people don't really focus on do you know what i mean that it's almost yeah, I mean, a perfect look- job First off, how did you hack my Zoom and how are you looking into my laundry room? Um, <laughs> I, I already know. We're all in our laundry rooms now. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, yes, certainly flying and flying in certain ways is and has been a status symbol, right? Airlines have been remarkably successful in making quite a bit of the passenger experience status symbol Related. I mean, literally, there are symbols of your status with the airline, right? That's what these you know, gold card holders, silver card holders, yes. um, platinum, unobtainium, medallion, extra <laughs> plus members, right? Um, that said, again, I, I come back to the thing where trends are accelerating, right? That said, airlines have for quite some time, for many airlines, sold those experiences for cash money to people who would want to purchase them. Right. Um, as a general rule, you get a nicer um, experience the more money you spend. This is not always the case, but fundamentally it is. I, I definitely think that we're going to see, certainly in the meantime, there's going to be a little bit of performative hair shirt wearing. You know, we're going to see companies highlighting the fact that, oh, yes, look, here is our CEO in, look, if not economy, maybe premium economy, 
you know, I think we're going to see a lot of companies saying that, well, look, you know, we've we all got good at this whole working from home thing um, and, you know, using you know, teleconferencing. Maybe we can cut our travel budgets. Fundamentally, a lot of budgets going to be cut anyway. So travel is going to be you know, inherently cut just because there's going to be less money floating around. But it's always been seen as something of a, uh, you know, one of the first levers you turn off if you need to to push some cash into your business, right? Mm. Um, and I don't see any chance of that changing. Right. One thing that, uh, I mean, just to return to something I mentioned earlier, climate change is, you know, it, is, it runs across every single story now. It runs across every industrial story and every, every political story. This, because every time we talk about, about coronavirus in any different sector on this podcast, the same thing pops up. Is it a Homer Simpson crisis unity? Is this a moment when the board is thrown over and you can rearrange things in a more uh, equitable, sustainable worthwhile defensible manner is aviation going to be able to take advantage of this moment and give us more sustainable flying perhaps less environmentally damaging flying and more of a defensible industry because it has been on the back foot from that point of view for many years yeah i mean rightly and wrongly in terms of that back footing right i mean aviation has done more than many industries in terms of reducing its emissions i think that there's an argument um, that aviation is responding to, you know, human demands, right? And so to an extent, it's a question of, well, if people want to fly less, airlines will fly less. I generally think that the industry has been fairly poor in reacting to the Flugscam kind of movement. Um, I think it's been very poor in terms of telling the good stories and backing those up with facts. As to whether this is going to be the sort of thing that aviation can benefit from i mean that it feels like a horrible thing to say but look we're we're, we're we're talking realistically here airlines have largely been grounding their older and therefore more polluting aircraft first um mm-hmm. i think that we're going to see those aircraft not fly again um and you know obviously for, for some of the those are the aircraft that we that we know and love right um i will be very surprised if we see very many uh, passenger 747 aircraft after this right um, with the exception, perhaps, of the 7478, the new one from last decade, right? Mm. Um, but just fundamentally, um, you know, these older, largely four-engined aircraft are less efficient. Um, now, <laughs> if oil remains in the place where it is, you basically, if you're an airline, you're essentially balancing capital expenditure on new fuel-efficient aircraft with operational expenditure on uh, fuel, mm. right? That's, that's inherently the thing that you're balancing. If fuel remains free... I mean, it's not technically free. Believe me, I understand all about fuel hedging and, and, and you know, futures that you have to collect the May one now. Um, but if, if fuel continues its slump, that's a push in the other direction, mm. right? Um, I think that we may well see more externality pressure coming as a result of you know, bankrupt governments needing to squeeze whatever they can out of their tax base. Um, by and large, aviation fuel is exempt from tax. Yeah. Um, inherently, from an economics point of view, and you know, I have some some environmental economics background. Inherently, there is a public good in sort of charging people on the polluter pays principle, which you would think would involve making airline fuel um, more expensive, right? I think that this is an opportunity for governments more so than an opportunity for airlines in terms of, again, renegotiating that 
set of expectations. Mm. Um, I think that airlines find themselves in this rather strange situation, particularly at the moment, where you know they're all saying we're going to go best if we don't get subsidies. But it's kind of the boy crying wolf if the boy was also a wolf. <laughs> right? Airlines have been, as a rule, pretty bad to people over the years, uh, and particularly in recent years, you know, um, the whole thing where, oh, no, we're going to weigh your carry-on bag, and, yeah. um, oh, no, if you want to change, it's this extra fee, and, um, you know, oh, well, if you, if you want anything more than the absolute minimum of experience, you've got to pay money, and so, you know, um, that's been a, a, a psychology of, of selling aviation to people for so long that I think that's a real, that's going to be a real problem when it comes time for aviation to want people to support it, right? right? Um, there's, you know, I don't want to be a downer towards airlines, but there's a point at which people, I mean, everyday people, and therefore the politicians who, who represent them, are going to say, well, actually, airlines, they're pretty terrible. Um, you know, it's they're making private profits um, from all of us, and maybe the ones who take a bath should be, you know, those private investors. Um, you know, that's that's what risk in business is. Um, now, let me let me be very clear. That will be very damaging to uh, the people who are employed by airlines, who are employed by airports, by the wider aviation industry. Like fundamentally, this is even on a small airline, thousands, if not tens of thousands, or sometimes hundreds of thousands of jobs. Yeah, and they are by and large relatively good jobs, um, and they are jobs that have knock-on effects to an economy. Right, there are reasons why countries um, want to have airlines in them right um uh, you uh, and by that i mean things like singapore airlines right singapore airlines is essentially uh, an organ of the singaporean state um which was set up to both you know provide transport to singapore but also to improve the image of singapore right. internationally and it did very well there um you're seeing something similar um in in the last couple of decades in the middle east right whether that's emirates etihad or qatar you know, fundamentally, these airlines are instruments of public diplomacy, much more so than they are businesses. Yeah. Right. And you've seen that in this crisis with Qatar Airways. You know, uh, anytime anybody needs some repatriation flights, Qatar is always there. Right. Um, and and that's a that is a, a literal organ of diplomacy for the for the Qatari state. For those airlines who operate outside of that context, there the, there have been real questions about whether or not they can compete. Um, I think that there will continue to be those questions. And I think with hindsight, it would have behooven, behooved, um, it would have been sensible for airlines to have conducted themselves a little better mm. with regard to your average passenger. Um, that might turn out to, you know, with the hindsight of 2020 vision, um, been a better way to get people on side for what is in many ways um, a critical national infrastructure business. Yeah. Right. Um, and I don't think airlines are, are alone here. I think a lot of the businesses that are critical national infrastructure have, especially the ones that, that you know, at one point were state-owned, were then privatized. Um, people who didn't understand how markets worked tried to marketize um, what are essentially utilities, and that just didn't work. Um, yeah. See UK Rail, for example, right? Um, I, I think that airlines may well be swept up in this sort of slightly wider question about what is the relationship between a people, a government, and the companies that, that are headquartered in those states. 
Um, And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think it might lead to more stable airlines. I think it might lead to better passenger experience. I don't just mean, oh, we'll go back to days where everyone is being served caviar and champagne and Chateaubriand and, you know, has more, has, you know, legroom for days. Um, What I mean is that fundamentally airlines will have to, you know, be even clearer about what they are selling and provide decent options for people. Um, And and that's no bad thing. Mm. John, this has been absolutely fascinating and kind of uh i don't know weirdly uh, encouraging from uh, you know from in the middle of this sort of global disaster we're enduring uh, where are you going to go on your first post lockdown flight oh that's a really good question <laughs> um it's either going to be i'm going to hop on a plane to go see my folks or i'm off to japan to to regain some of the zen that I think we've all lost. Yes, I think in, you need uh, to bring some back then. I certainly need a bit of that as well. John, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really, really interesting. Listeners, do follow him on Twitter at that John, not the other John, that John. And do visit Walton.travel. Uh, John's stuff is really interesting and he's across the entire subject from uh, what it's like to be in the cabin to the business to everything dead interesting if you've enjoyed this podcast then there's another bunker daily every monday tuesday thursday and friday morning and of course our epic infinity war crossover edition comes out every wednesday morning so don't forget to subscribe john thanks for joining us listeners thank you for flying with us we hope to see you again soon bye bye the bunker daily was produced and presented by andrew harrison the assistant producer was jacob archbold and audio production was by me alex reese Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson, The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.